You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 143. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to The Lively Show. This episode is sponsored by PrepDish.com. Shop once, prep once, and enjoy healthy, stress-free meals all week. To get a free two-week trial of PrepDish, go over to PrepDish.com slash LivelyFree to give it a shot. At the end of this episode, we'll be speaking with PrepDish member Jennifer Liptrot about the service. Now let's move on to some announcements on the vlog front, the video blog. I am sharing this week how to make candles at home in the microwave. I don't know about you, but I have so many beautiful candle vessels, vases, etc. that I've spent kind of a lot of money on, especially if I've gotten one from Anthropology. And I've been kind of annoyed that I can't just recreate the same candle or just put another candle in the same vase that I spent maybe $30 or more on. So I went out and spoke with Detroit Rose Ritual creator Deidre Skiles out of Detroit to teach us how to do this on the vlog. I will tell you guys, it is cheap. It can cost just about a dollar, not counting the scent, which is probably the pricier part of the candle I've now learned, excluding the vessel. So you can refill your candle vessels for as little as a dollar. We're gonna show you how to do it. It's such a cool vlog. I'm so excited to start showing some of these things like macaroon making and candle making, just stuff that I wish I knew how to do through the vlog in addition to the travels and trips and all those sorts of things. So I hope you like it. You can go over and check it out at JessLively.com. And of course, to follow on the European travels that are happening as we speak, head over to Instagram and check out JessLively.com for more information and to see where in the world am I at this moment. Now let's go into our all-star episode today. This is a fan favorite and one of my personal episodes I truly have listened to and re-listened to the most. This is Brooke Castillo, and this is her first episode. Brooke's been on the show twice, but this is her first episode talking about how to change negative thought patterns. Brooke is the founder of the Life Coach School and the Life Coach School podcast. Ever since this interview, we've become good friends. I love talking to Brooke. She's so much fun. She's a fiery pistol, I would like to say, if I had to try to describe her in some way. And her work is so powerful. In this episode, things that I took from it are how to spot the thoughts, emotions, and actions that form our good and not so great habits in life. And one of the huge aha moments that I've gotten is also how we can have full access to every emotion that we want when we feel like blank happens in our lives. So instead of having to wait for our circumstances to shift, we have the emotional ability to tap into those emotions at any moment. That was kind of a brain-bending thought for me until I heard her share it, and I've started to practice with that in my own life, and it's been incredibly liberating. It's also interesting to hear my take on worth and work about a year ago. This episode aired last summer. To see how far I've come on that subject is really fun to kind of review and reflect on as well. Let's go to the show. Brooke, thank you so much for coming on The Lively Show today. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I am pumped to unleash you in this episode. So let's get started. Tell us about your background and how you got to where you are. Okay, so that um, requires me to know where I am, which is... (laughs) (laughs) Such a big question. Where am I? It's so interesting because I look at the goals that I had 10 years ago and I've kind of arrived at that place where I had 
you know, intentionally set for myself. But of course, now that I'm here, I have so many bigger goals for myself. Where I am right now is I own a company called The Life Coach School. I train life coaches. I started myself as a weight loss coach, first and foremost, and I really dedicated myself full-time. I have a full-time weight coaching business for many years before I branched into teaching other coaches. I had a really successful practice. So people kept coming to me and saying, hey, teach me what you do. And I had developed a lot of tools around coaching that people wanted to utilize. So started teaching those to students. And eventually that got so big that I opened up my own school. That's where I'm, I have arrived now. And I'm just at that point where I'm kind of graduating from this solo entrepreneur into this person who has all these employees that I don't quite know what to do with yet. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So here's a question. I have this theory that some people are just born laid back and aren't really bothered by life very much. I'm thinking about my youngest brother, Michael, actually, as I say this. And then there's people like me that were not born quite so laid back and really have struggled and kind of hit my head on the walls. And in doing so, realize if I'm going to go through this wall, I might as well learn how to help other people. Or maybe this is an opportunity to help other people as well. Were you one of the laid back babies from the start or were you one of the more stressed out kids? This is so funny. And I run into people all the time with this. I had to struggle and figure out all these tools to like get over myself and figure out my life. And then sometimes I try and teach those tools to other people like my husband and they're like, duh, (laughs) (laughs) this is so obvious. Of course, your thoughts create your feelings. You know, I think there's just certain people like those laid back people that just kind of get this stuff. And then there's the rest of us, I would say. Growing up, what was the rat race in your head looking like specifically that you had to overcome? I was always trying to figure out how to be happy. I knew that other people were happy and I knew I wasn't. And I knew that there was a secret formula, which of course there isn't, right? (laughs) I knew there was this like secret formula of things that I needed to do. If I just did them in the right order, in the right way and got the right amount of them, then I would somehow be happy. My goal was really to solve that puzzle. For me personally, I thought the answer was in self-help books. And so I I would say I read probably 5,000 of them before I was 25. Which one changed you the most? The first one I read. And I would say, I think that one changed me the most. And here's why. So first of all, it was um, a book from Robin Norwood. And the book is Women Who Love Too Much. And I read it when I was 15 and I had just broken up with my boyfriend. (laughs) So I think the book was so fantastic because what she did was she described my problem to me in language that helped me understand it more. So it was almost like she understood the problem more than I did. And I think that was the most connected I'd ever felt to another human being. Like she could really relate in this book to what I was going through. And what it did is it turned me on to self-help. So I would say that was kind of my most pivotal book. But I will say since reading that book, I would say the other book that changed me the most was Byron Katie's Loving What Is. Oh, so good. That book just took me like into a whole nother stratosphere when it came to my work. I do that one a lot with my clients. If we're working through a problem, it's a great tool to pull out of the toolbox. She's amazing. Love her. She's had such an influence on my life for sure. How did the coaching with weight become a thing? So I was obsessed with my weight when I was a teenager. I just knew, you know, you know, referring back to what I had said about the secret to happiness, I was pretty sure thinness had it. And if you were just <laughs> thin enough, then you would be super happy and everything would fall into place. And of course, that was the most elusive thing. I could not figure out how to lose. For me, it was about 15 pounds, but I was so obsessive around food and exercise and I was an emotional eater and I was, you know, looking in all those self-help books for the answer and trying to figure out 
can I solve this? I remember it was so painful when, when you're in an emotional eating cycle with yourself. It is such a painful shame cycle that I remember thinking like, if I ever figure this out, I am going to share the answer with people. And I really found the answer in coaching. When I started understanding how my mind worked and how emotions worked in correlation with my mind, that's when I was really able to kind of solve the riddle. Then when I became a coach, I was like, okay, this is the only thing I want to focus on is people that struggle with emotional eating. So I did figure it out for myself and I did lose over 70 pounds. I had gained quite a bit of weight after my second pregnancy and was unable to lose it. And so that's when I really dove into the coaching and started studying it. I've been doing emotional overeating coaching since then. And it is, I would say, the true love of my life, working with people that have that struggle because that struggle sucks. Yeah, I had it for nine years myself. For me, the work of Janine Roth, Women, Food, and God, helped me get the first clue to that. Janine Roth's work had a huge impact on me. And one of the things that I learned from her was how to feel my feelings. But her work only took me as far as feeling crappy all the time. Because I was like, okay, I'm going to, I mean, I'm willing to feel what I'm going to feel all the time, but I really just felt terrible all the time. And I did her whole process, but it only took me so far. When I started studying the cognitive piece, which is basically that our thoughts create our feelings, right? And recognizing that the reason I was feeling so terrible is because I had such a low opinion of myself and all the thoughts that were running through my head, that was the missing piece for me. So my work, I wrote a book called If I'm So Smart, Why Can I Lose Weight? And that whole book is really focused on the fact that eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full is really just math. <laughs> That's the simple piece of it, right? Everything else is just the drama. When you can separate those two things out, when you are literally eating just to fuel your body, that's a very simple equation. The rest of it is dealing with your mind and your emotional life. That's the tricky part for sure. Yes. And this is a perfect segue because I have asked you on to talk about overcoming the negative thought patterns we can have in our minds, which I dub the ego. And it's not about inflated sense of self. It's more Eckhart Tolle for those that are familiar with his work. It's more about any thought that is not loving, peaceful, connected, and whole. So anything that feels superior or inferior to someone else or compares ourselves or feels less than or feels like we'll be more complete if we weigh X pounds in your example there. When it comes to that thought experience. Do you come across that a lot with your clients that that is something you guys are dealing with in your coaching? That's the main thing I deal with (laughs) (laughs) all of the time, right? The thing about what goes on in your brain, the first piece that I'm always introducing, and it sounds so simplistic, but it's such an important point, is what goes on in your brain, you have to become aware of it. So I'm always saying your brain is the most influential tool in your life. Like you said, you have to use your brain to even access your intuition because it's the translator. And so when your brain is filled with negativity and filled with thoughts and judgments and opinions that aren't serving you, you are unable to access your own wisdom. So the first step is really just having a look. Now, I'll tell you that most of my clients, as soon as we start looking into our brain, I love the way Elizabeth Gilbert says, it's not a place you want to go alone. (laughs) (laughs) I heard that recently. It's like, it's not safe neighborhood. (laughs) Don't go alone. Exactly. It's a dark, scary neighborhood. Make sure you take someone with you. That's why you need a coach. Right? But when you start looking into your brain and you start seeing one of the activities that I have my clients do is what we call thought downloads. And it's basically taking all of that negativity that's in your brain and taking it out of your brain and putting it on a piece of paper. That's really kind of the first 
process is just becoming aware of it. But what happens to most of us is we become aware of it and we just want to delete it, ignore it or avoid it. And so we don't even realize the impact that it's having on our lives because we don't want it to be there. So we pretend like it isn't. I think for most of us, we have to recognize that the negative thinking doesn't mean there's something wrong with us. It doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong. It's literally a part of what it means to be a human. So being able to look into your brain and see what's going on in there and to see that it's negative and not judge it just to watch it is really the first practice. And to know like if you're thinking a thought, like a lot of us have very negative thoughts, like she's ugly or I don't like her, or I wish I were better than her, or she's so pretty, I wish she were ugly. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I hate the look of the cellulite on my thighs. Whatever it is that goes on in my clients' brains, they feel very ashamed about. They feel like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to admit that I'm having these thoughts. They're just thoughts. They're just sentences in your brain. If you can take them out of your brain and have a look at them without judging them, that really is the first piece. Because your thoughts that you think in your brain will create your feelings. Now, why does that matter? And why is that important? A couple reasons. The first reason is if you want to feel differently, you must look to your brain. Okay. Most of us try to feel differently by looking outside of ourselves. Case in point, we wanted to feel different. We would eat food to try and change how we're feeling, or we try and lose weight in order to change how we're feeling. Or we look for validation in our work. Exactly. Looking outside of ourselves, looking for approval from somebody else. First and foremost, if you want to feel differently, you need to look into your brain to find out why you feel the way you do. The other thing, and this is really relevant to the work you're doing this month on your podcast, is if you want to access a true intuition, if you want to be able to know where your true wisdom is, you have to clean up your brain first. Because a lot of times what happens is we feel a negative emotions so to speak. And we think, ooh, this means I should go in a different direction. Well, maybe it does, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe that isn't an intuitive hit that you're having. Maybe it's just a really negatively programmed thought. In order for you to be able to distinguish between those, you have to look into your brain, make sure you've cleaned up your thinking, right? Make sure you're consciously thinking what you want to think. And then the wisdom can come pouring through and the intuition becomes so much more clear. Absolutely. So once you've put it down on paper, what happens? Is that just kind of a magical thing or is there something that they do once they've written it down that comes after that? Yes. Okay. So the first step is you write everything down. The second step is you do not judge yourself. You are not allowed to say, I'm a horrible person. There's something wrong with me. I can't believe I have so much negative thinking. So write it all down, then notice it with curiosity. Then what I recommend is that you pick one of those thoughts. It doesn't matter which one. Everyone wants to get the deepest, darkest, best, more important underlying thought. It doesn't matter which one. Find any thought that is what you would term as negative and grab that thought and ask yourself, how do I feel when I think this thought? And then name the feeling. So a lot of us, what we think about, we think isn't optional. So for example, if I say something like, I'm really busy today, we think we're just making an observation, right? We think we're just stating a fact, but we're not. That's an opinion about the facts. And so when we can look at a thought like, I'm too busy, I'm not going to get it all done, I have way too much work to do, I'm never going to accomplish my dreams because I have so much to do, whatever thought it is, just grab one. So if you grab a thought like, I'm too busy, you can see that that 
thought creates stress. It creates this feeling of stress. You don't even recognize it's a thought. You think you're just looking at your day. But you can have the exact same day with the exact same number of things to do on your to-do list and have a different thought about your day and feel completely different and therefore approach your day completely differently. But most of us, what we try and do is we try and change how we're feeling and we try and change how we're thinking before we even see where we were starting, right? So the, the thought download and writing down the thoughts and picking the one thought and seeing how it's feeling is really has to be that first step before you even think about changing and more consciously choosing what you want to believe. And like you had said, thoughts that bring us peace and motivation and inspiration and excitement are wonderful. We want to be able to consciously choose the direction that our mind goes, but we can't jump to that step until we've really had a look from a really peaceful and non-judgmental place of where we are in order to make that shift be kind of gentle. The ego, I always like to say, is like a dog chained outside barking. Actually, I think about Franklin, our Westie. He hates skateboarders every single time without fail. He thinks in his head that by barking at the skateboarder, he's making him go away. But the truth is the skateboarder's just going down the street and he's going to leave whether or not Franklin is barking his head off. If we can just put down these thoughts and look at the thoughts as this is a scared dog, you wouldn't hit a dog or shame the dog for having this fear, even though I kind of feel like yelling at our dog to stop doing it. I wouldn't actually do that because it's just going to create more fear. And actually, the more I yell at him, he thinks I'm barking at the skateboarder too. And it's reinforcing this fear of skateboarders are bad versus, all right, thank you for doing your job. I hear we have a skateboarder outside. And then he kind of calms down because he thinks he did his job. So if we can use that same perspective with our thoughts, even just having pity for like, oh, that's such a scared little voice. (laughs) And I see its fear and its shame or whatever might be coming up on that paper, then we're not quite so ready to attack it and make it defend itself. Yeah, totally. I love that analogy. I also use one. I I say an unsupervised mind is like a toddler with a knife. It's not like you want to get mad at the toddler. It's just doing what toddlers do, right? It's running around. It doesn't know how dangerous the knife is. It just thinks it's fun. And so you wouldn't exactly like what you said, you wouldn't yell and scream and scare and freak out on the toddler. The brain doesn't really know. It doesn't care if it's thinking a positive thought or a negative thought. It just is thinking whatever it's practiced and whatever it's um, really efficient at doing. And and that's the important thing to remember about the brain too. It's only pre-program agenda is to be efficient. So it will take all the negative thoughts that we've been thinking since childhood and just think them really well. And it doesn't care if it's hurting us or not, that's not even part of its agenda. Its agenda is only to be efficient. So when you were saying that, I was thinking about um, one of Eckhart Tolle, one of my favorite quotes that he has is, um, worry pretends to be necessary. And I think that that's so true for so many of our thoughts. They pretend to be necessary. It's like, oh, if we think a worrying thought, then somehow that will serve us. If we think about us being overweight, if we hate our body, then somehow that will make us thin. It's so illogical, but it's all pretending to be very necessary and pretending to serve us. I think that's how sometimes we get a little off track with our own thinking. Most of us just avoid any negative thinking, right? We just push it away. And this process is really about bringing it to light without judgment. So once we have brought it to light without judgment, then we look at what feelings are evoked by those thoughts. That's right. What do we do once we know there's a lot of fear, there's some shame, there's some blame? 
What do we do with those feelings? Well, so what I'm telling you right now, just for reference, if someone wants to know this process, because I I know sometimes you hear something on a podcast and if you're a visual learner, you're like, what the heck are they even (laughs) talking about? I go through what I call the self-coaching 101 process. It's a model that I use. So basically you write down your thought, then you write down the feeling that is caused by that thought. Then a really helpful question is to ask, what action does that feeling cause? When I'm feeling scared, what do I do? When I'm feeling frustrated, what do I do? When I'm feeling um, shame, what do I do? And what you'll see is that whatever action you take because of that emotion will lead to a result that will prove that original thought true. Let me like break that down and unpack it a little bit because it's really important. So if you have a thought that says, I'm too busy today, the thought you're going to feel is stressed out. Now, ironically, you would think that feeling stressed out would make you work more and faster and harder. It does the exact opposite. (laughs) (laughs) How so? Most of my clients, when they feel stressed out, they go and like watch an episode of Housewives or something completely (laughs) non-productive, which of course proves that we're too busy For me, I used to, whenever I would feel stressed out as I would just eat, which of course was not productive and didn't get anything done. And so the result would be less work done, which of course proved that original thought, which was I was too busy and there wasn't enough time. That's kind of what the process that I like to go through. Now, the top part of the self-coaching model, and this I think is one of the best ways if ever you're struggling with a problem that you don't feel has a solution, this is a really good way to do it. It's to separate out the facts from your thoughts because like I had mentioned before, a lot of times we think that our observations are facts. So we think saying I'm too busy is a fact when really it's just an opinion. So what you could do is write down, I'm too busy on one side of the paper and then write down the actual facts of what's going on that day. And there is something so relieving in being able to do that. So like when I have a client that comes to me and they're like, oh my gosh, I have so much to do today. It's so crazy and drama, 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 drama. And I say, okay, tell me exactly what you need and want to do today. And it's usually like four things. It's amazing how we exasperate and exaggerate things in order to prove our own belief systems that we don't have enough time. And when we really break down those facts, that can really be helpful. So then you have your facts, your thought. And then when you look at your thought, your thought creates your feelings, your feelings create your actions and your actions create your results. I like to write it all down and look at it without judgment. Ultimately, what it shows us is the effect of our thinking on our lives, because I believe that our thoughts do create our results in that progression. I don't know if you talk about this at all on your show, but one of the things that people like to talk about a lot is the law of attraction. And there's been this like huge, I think, misconception with that. If you think about it, it'll come. (laughs) Exactly. No, you have to cut out a magazine picture. I know. It has to be on a poster board. Oprah's got to be on there too. (laughs) Exactly. And if you put it on the wall, then somehow it will happen. It's so misconstrued. I do think our thoughts create our lives, but it's not as easy as just thinking about something, right? Our thoughts create our feelings, actions, and therefore our actions create our results. And so there are a few more steps in, (laughs) in that progression, but I think it's an important thing to understand that, you know, when you do pay attention to your mind, you can see why you're getting the results you are getting in your life. So once I'm too busy, then I watch Housewives and then I prove that I am too busy. Exactly. (laughs) How do we start to write the ship, if you will, and to start rewriting it? Do we write down the positive thoughts on another piece of paper and do the reverse process? 
Such a great question. The first step is really just seeing what's going on in your brain, right? And really kind of seeing the effect of that thinking. Everyone wants to jump to the part where we have, I always say we want to get to rainbows and daisies, but it's really important that you look at what's currently going on first and not be in such a hurry to feel good because sometimes people try and use coaching and thought work just to feel good immediately as if that's the only answer. Like a bliss ninny is what Philip Urso calls it. Exactly. I think a lot of people think that we should be happy all the time. And one of the things that I have found in my own life is that my well-being and my overall acceptance of what's going on in my life has gotten so much bigger when I have really truly been willing to feel any emotion. Because when we spend so much of our life trying to avoid emotion, right? We're like, oh, I don't want to feel sad. I, I want to make all this money and be thin and be rich and be successful because then I'll never be sad again. Yes. It's the story. It's the promise, if you will. Exactly. So I think one of a kind of my cautions is I want to make sure that everyone's kind of willing to feel what they're feeling first before we're jumping to rainbows and daisies. But once you're ready to make that shift, then looking at the facts and asking yourself, in this example that we've been using, I'm too busy. You can look at, okay, I have four things that I need to do today. How do I want to feel about those four things? How do I want to think about those four things in a way that will get me the result I want? Even just shifting from I'm too busy to a really, you know, and I'm not asking you to go to, I'm not busy at all. Everything's wonderful. I try to help my clients just shift a little bit to, I have four things to do today or I have 17 things to do today, whatever it happens to be, just state the fact creates so much more relief. And when you can just stay out of what I call the mind drama, when you just look at what is, one of the important things to remember, especially in an example like this, is that you don't have to do any of it. People say, oh, I have to do 17 things today. Yeah. When you said 17, I was like, I don't know that they need to do the 17. They might want to do 17 things. You don't even have to do any of it. This is what people that I have to. I'm like, you really don't. You can lay in bed all day. That's what's so cool about being an adult. And breathe. <laughs> you don't even have to breathe, right? I mean, you get to do whatever you want. You know, one of the examples that I used when I was first starting to coach was I used to say all the time, I have to take care of my kids. I have two boys and they're 14 months apart. And at the time they were toddlers. I have to take care of these kids all day. I have to take care of these kids all day. And what I realized one day when I was at the park is I don't have to take care of them. I mean, I literally could just leave right now. They're at the park. I could, I could put them up for adoption. I do not have to feed them. I do not have to take care of them. And it seems like this big profound thing. And it was because I stopped saying that. I never say I have to work and I never say I have to take care of my kids. I want to work. I want to take care of my kids. I want to stop at the grocery store and get toilet paper. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, don't turn your want to's into have to's. It's such a huge shift in the way you feel, but in your mind, it's just a subtle shift. So that's what I try and help people do. I don't try and take them from, I hate my body to, I love my body. We go from, I hate my body to, I have a body to then maybe I like my body and then maybe to, I love my body, right? So we make those shifts by switching from the negative drama to maybe just stating the facts and then maybe looking at it from a different perspective that serves us. One thing I will warn though, is when you're working on your mind and you're working on consciously choosing thoughts that you want to believe, it's really important not to pretend like you believe something because that's just another way of avoiding what's really going on. Pretending like you're not feeling upset is not the same as feeling happy. <laughs> Say that again. 
<laughs> Pretending that you're not feeling upset is not the same as feeling happy. I never teach my clients to pretend to not feel anything. It's the opposite. Feel what you actually are feeling. Recognize its cause. And from there, you can have authority over it and maybe release it. It's only once you accept it that you can let it go. That's exactly right. Yeah. I actually have a tattoo and my intention tattoos that I sell and they're temporary little tatlies. One of them says, accept what is. And some people love it. And some people get it and they're like, part of me likes it. And the other ego part is like railing against it. It's really about, yeah, accepting what is so that you're not fighting what is. And then you have the freedom to choose differently. Totally. I love that you brought this example up because I deal with this a lot with my clients who want to lose weight. I teach them the body that you're in is the body you're meant to be in. There has been no mistake. For you to live your destiny, the life you're meant to live, this is the body that you've been given for it. I know that you think it'll be easier to accept it when you're thinner, but I promise you it won't be. I've been there. I've done this. But people are afraid, exactly like what you said. If I accept my body like it is, then it won't change. But of course, the exact opposite is true. People don't want to accept reality because then they think that it will always be that way. But the opposite is true. When you accept it, then you get authority over it. Then you can make the changes that you need to change. I remember when I made the shift to saying, I don't want to keep losing and gaining the same 10 pounds the rest of my life. I told my mom, I was standing in an express store, the clothing store at the time. I was in my early 20s or mid 20s at that point. And I said, I'm going to stop trying to lose weight because I've been miserable for the nine years that I've been trying to control this with my head. And she said, and she did not mean this in a bad way. She was just being very pragmatic. She's like, well, if you're not trying to lose weight and you're just going to eat what your intuition tells you to eat until you're satisfied, what if you get fatter? <laughs> she didn't say fatter, but she's just, you know, like, what if it doesn't work? And I had to, for myself at least, truly to accept what was and to truly not try to solve it with the same source of the problems, if you will. I had to just say, I don't know what's going to happen. That is a possibility, but I know that I value peace more than trying to force the control that's been backfiring for nine years. All of this to say, I totally agree with everything you're saying. It's really hard to let go of that perception of control. Oh my gosh. It's so huge. I remember it's so interesting because I had a really kind of similar moment in my own life. It might have even been Janine's book. It said, would you rather be thin or happy? And I was like, what's the difference, right? <laughs> to me, I'm like, that's would you rather be happy or happy? Really, really genuinely, my answer was thin. But I knew that that answer made no sense. And that's when I really had that moment where I was like, no, the truth is the reason I want to be thin is because I think that's what make me happy. So maybe if I just focus on trying to be happy without the thin part, I may end up being overweight. But if I'm happy, who cares? And that I really had to allow my mind to consider, which was huge for me. It's interesting when I was listening to you talk about your mom, like, what if your intuition only wants you to eat ice cream? And you and I both know that your intuition would never only want you to eat just ice cream. Regis Philbin said the same thing to Janine Roth on an interview once. He said, what if you just eat ice cream sundaes all day? And she goes, well, you might for a little while, but if you're really listening to your intuition, in the long run, it won't want to. And for my own journey, one of the really cool things that I've recently realized and is the next chapter for me in this whole eating journey, since we're kind of touching on the subject, since we both have it in common, six years ago is roughly when I made that conversation with my mom at Express and I started to intuitively eat well. What I did not realize until Memorial Day weekend of this year was that ever so subtly, ever so slightly, I 
transferred that addiction. You always hear about addiction transfer, especially for people that do gastric bypass surgery. They haven't dealt with the real issue, then it will transfer to something else. Well, as much as I did kind of do a soul searching solution, if you will, to the eating, it transferred. The ego kind of shifted over two degrees and fixated on my career. Mm. I didn't have a Janine Roth book, Women Work in God, (laughs) to read. But I just found that the same types of suffering and repetitive behaviors ever so subtly at different ways at different times in my career over the last six years has started to be that defining factor for me. Instead of finding my worth in my body, I started finding my worth in my work. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a really big issue, not just for me because I had eating issues. I think this is something, especially for Gen Y, there's this huge emphasis on their worth being connected to their work. And if they're not doing something they feel as worthy in work, that they feel less as a person. And not everyone obviously has this issue. But I think that this is something that I'm looking to explore more personally and hope to share with others that, like me, just didn't know that could be something that could be happening to them. And it could hopefully alleviate a lot of suffering. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh my God, it's so huge. What's so interesting is a lot of my clients go from food to wine. (laughs) I call Chardonnay the pretty addiction, right? (laughs) It's such a pretty glass. And, you know, workaholism is really trying to get our value from our work. And same with exercise, by the way, is one of those kind of acceptable, quote unquote, addictions for many people. A lot of people are like, oh, you're so successful. That's horrible, right? (laughs) I'm so sorry to hear that. It's just like being thin. You look beautiful. You look so successful. You get literally rewarded by society the more beautiful you are. And it's not to say that's always the case for every scenario, right? We're doing huge broad strokes here. But the same goes for like the more attention and money you earn if you're successful. Literally for me with writing a book, the more stats I have, the more money I literally get paid. It's just very frustrating. And this kind of feels like even like a model, the thinner, more beautiful they are, the more they get paid. That's right. Yeah. But everyone wants to look good in bikini or a lot of people want to look good at the pool. So it's not just about getting paid, but it's just like a really insidious thing. And just like food, we need to eat to survive. In some way, we need income to get through the day unless you're living without a society that needs money. But if you're listening to this podcast, odds are you need income in some source or another, just like you need food in some source or another. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. I'm raising two teenage boys now and my older son, Christian, who's 14, is quite an accomplished golfer. He used to be um, totally dedicated to soccer, which was our entire life, which I enjoyed watching. And now I'm watching golf. So that's a whole nother (laughs) (laughs) Oprah discussion we could have. I was just recently having this conversation with him and he was saying, mom, you know, I just need to get better. I just need to win. I want to be the best in my age group. I just need to work harder. And it's so interesting. And I said, okay, so tell me, what do you believe will be different when you are the best in your age group, when you are winning these tournaments? What do you think will be different? This is so profound what he said. And I think it's exactly what you're talking about when it comes to being thin or being successful in your job is he said, because then I will feel better about myself. I will have a higher opinion about myself. Now, is it because he's winning? It's because he's getting recognized. It's because he's so successful. No, the only difference is that we give ourselves permission to think a different thought about who we are and our opinion of ourselves. So if you can get that many people reading your book or that many people watching your podcast or or that many people paying you that much money, 
we make that mean something about ourselves. And so it's never going to be enough. That's the interesting thing, right? Is because you can never be thin enough. There's never enough food you can't have, right? And there's never enough food if you eat it that will solve the problem. That's a really important question. Like, why is it that you want what you want? Do you believe that there's some elusive feeling, some elusive thing out there that you can only experience when you've achieved that. And the best thing about my work and the work that we're talking about is there is no emotion that isn't available to you right now. So whatever you believe you'll feel when you've accomplished whatever it is you think you're going to accomplish, the only reason you'll feel that is because of what you will think about yourself. And here's the greatest news is we can think that about ourselves whenever we want. We don't have to make these rules that we have to make a million dollars or five million dollars or ten million dollars in order to have that opinion about ourselves. And here's the best part ever. Whatever it is you think you're going to feel when you're more successful or thinner or whatever, if you find a way to feel that now, then the chances of you experiencing that level of external success are so much higher, but it won't matter so much. That's exactly how it was with the weight. I was just going to ask you that. That's so funny. Yeah, that's exactly what happened is I ended up getting down to the natural weight my doctor told me I needed to be at and I did not fight to get there. I don't fight to stay there. It just happened slowly, ever, ever so slowly. (laughs) But it's not that big of a deal, right? It's not like, oh, I have arrived. No, it's not. And it was stressful when I was crazy thin too. I was constantly worried about gaining. Yeah. And it's the same. It is literally the same. And I know that on a deep level, I've done enough of this work to know, like, I don't truly feel this way. Yes. But my ego is truly motivated that direction. And so now it's recognizing it because I just couldn't see it. And I think when it comes to having your own business, especially, it's just even more of a lens because we get such an identity around what risks you're taking or what your work you're doing that's literally got your name on it, justlively.com, you know, all this stuff. And also that does translate to the income you're able to bring to your family, which is the same in any career, really. So there's more opportunities you have in all these other great ways as well when those numbers shift. And here's the other big thing I've realized. People that work a lot or people that are starving both have lack of resources. So if you're working 20 hours a day as a janitor to pay the bills for your family, there is a lack of resources. If you are 80 pounds and you're in Africa and you can't feed your family or yourself, that is not an eating disorder or what I'm coining a working disorder. That is a lack of resources and there is an emergency situation here. You're doing what you can to survive. And yes, there's a lot of suffering, but it's not coming from your ego per se, as much as like physically there are issues that you are trying to solve. But I wasn't even overworking. I was still suffering based on my sense of well-being, being this kind of hazy barometer of how I felt about my work and how it was going at any given day. So I hope that anyone that's listening to this thinks back to themselves too. It doesn't mean you work a ton of hours and you're a workaholic and that's why you have a problem. It's are you suffering in bigger, small ways during your day and have this little sense of unease and this urge to validate yourself through your career? when things are feeling a little uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, and what is so fascinating about this, and this doesn't make sense to people who haven't had a certain level of success, but I think there is a correlation a lot of times with the level of success that you've had and the suffering, which of course is like counterintuitive. You think the more successful you are, the less 
suffering you would have. But here's what happens. This is my opinion anyway. I think what happens is we start getting a lot of accolades. We start getting a lot of, oh my gosh, you're so great. Your show's so great. You're so great. Everything you're doing is great. I'm going to pay you lots of money, right? People start paying us money. And we start believing that that has something to do with us personally. I think that's the same for your son and the golfing, right? Totally. Exactly right. Because he was going to get all of this attention from all the golf coaches and the people on, on the course. Yeah. I tell this to my coaches. So I train coaches, right? And I tell them all the time. I said, if your client said you did a great job, that really has nothing to do with you. And if your client said you did a bad job, that really has nothing to do with you. And that's fantastic news because their opinion about you is about them. So you have to be careful the more successful you get to not make it about you. It's not about you. It's about the people that are responding to the work that you're doing in the world. And if you can keep those things separate, just like if someone thinks you're pretty or thin enough or cute in your outfit or whatever, that has nothing to do with you. That's when you can really kind of come back to yourself. And people say to me all the time, oh my gosh, your work changed my life. I know that that's not true, right? They changed their life. But I also know when someone comes to me and says, your work didn't work, I don't like what you're teaching, I know that's not about me either. And that's where I can kind of come back to myself and stay really grounded and know that my success out there in the world and the number of people that give me money or don't really has nothing to do with my worth. Yes. You know, one of the things I've been working on, it's amazing how kind the people that have listened to the show are. They say, I love the show. It's changing my life. I'll say, it's wonderful to hear the show is helping you so much rather than I am so blank. Because if I have that emotion when you like it, I'm going to have the opposite emotion if you don't like it. So I'm trying to kind of, I guess, protect or just de-escalate that for myself right now. Yeah, I think that's a really important practice. And one of the other things that I think is important is to separate yourself from your work. Like I like to look at my work as a contribution that I'm putting out there. And if it's for you, great. And if it's not for you, great. But it doesn't have to do with me personally. And that's tricky because I think when you're first starting out, if you have any level of insecurity and someone tells you that you're amazing, it's very tempting to want to take that on and use that as kind of that approval seeking, you would say the ego, right? That approval seeking fill up. I think that's a dangerous place to go because it's a leaky bucket. That's right. You're always seeking it and you're always trying to get it. And then if I'm on this call with you and I'm trying to get your approval, I'm not showing up as myself. I'm showing up as the version of myself that I think you want me to be. And that robs you of me, my genuine self. And it also robs me of really my contribution that I think I'm meant to give to the world. I think that a lot of people struggle with that because they're afraid of showing up as they are because they don't think that that's going to be good enough. But here's the rub. When you show up as you are and people do think that's good enough, that's when you really have a breakdown. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, say that again. Why would you have a breakdown then? So so like a lot of people are afraid to show up as they are because they're afraid they'll be rejected. But what I've seen is when you show up as you are and you're accepted and approved of and people love you, that's when you really have the breakdown because now you're like, oh my God, right? Oh, oh, you're breakdown in a good way, not breakdown in a bad way. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's awesome. So what doubts or internal resistance in your own head are you facing lately? Oh my gosh. It's so funny because I do this work and I help so many people do it. And then I wake up every morning with a good dose of anxiety. I just feel like, and so many people feel like this, shouldn't I be over this yet? Haven't I graduated into this land of, I don't have to work on this so hard? I would say I doubt myself 
consistently. It's something that has happened all through my life is this doubt. Now, here's what I'll say. I've gotten so much better at managing it. It's never ending. I'm always doubting. One of my yoga teachers always says, doubt your doubt. And I'm like, you know, I'm so good at doubting. I should just start doubting all my doubts. (laughs) So I think, you know, I have really big goals for myself. And I think the bigger goals we have, the more doubt we're going to have in our life because we're always going to be questioning. I know that anytime I'm feeling that, it's because of what I'm thinking. And so I just go back to my brain and I check in and I say, hey, what are we efficient at thinking right now? And I just have a look and I'm really conscious about it. And this is so huge. I'm willing to feel the doubt and keep taking action. I think a lot of times people think doubt means don't and they think that that's somehow their intuition. It is not. It's a dog barking like what you would say. It's not that genuine part of you because that genuine part of you never doubts anything. It knows that you're capable of everything. So I would say doubting my abilities and doubting am I really capable of going to that next level would be something that's kind of an ongoing thing for me. What would you tell someone who is just starting out on this journey? Most of the people that probably listen to your show are seeking, right? Seeking something to make their lives better. I think that's what a lot of people want to do. They want to live a good life. They want to find happiness. And most of us want to make a contribution. So if you're just starting that journey, if you're just kind of putting yourself out there, I would want you to know that you are going to have fear. You are going to have doubt. And there are going to be many, many obstacles. This does not mean that something has gone wrong and it does not mean that you're going in the wrong direction. What it means is that those things are all being placed in front of you because you're capable of them and there is nothing that you can't handle. Even though it's hard, doesn't mean that it's wrong. And I think a lot of people turn away from their own dreams and from their own desires because something is hard and they think something being hard means they're going the wrong way. I think the opposite is true. I love that. Thank you, Brooke, so much for coming on and sharing your experience with us and all of your insights. I hope that those listening get a chance to start writing down their thoughts and starting to recalibrate everything as you shared today. Totally. I loved being here. It was super fun. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And Brooke, thank you again for coming on the show. To send Brooke a message, you can do so on Twitter at Brooke Castillo. And you can find me on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, etc. at Jess C as in cross stitch lively. For show notes for today's episode, hop over to JessLively.com slash Brooke Castillo All-Star. Before I share who's coming up next week on the show, let's talk with Prep Dish member Jennifer Liptrot about her experience with the service. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a working mom. I have two children. My husband works full-time as well, and we're a pretty busy family. <laughs> I also know you're a big fan of Prep Dish. Would you mind sharing how it works? Uh, sure. We just discovered Prep Dish about a month ago, and we love it. I've been doing it every week since I discovered it. What I do is I print out the list, and it has a shopping list, the grocery list on front. It has directions um, on the second page on how to prepare, and then it has a list of what to do the day that you're actually going to eat your meal. It works perfectly for us because my husband and I actually share the duties I put together the shopping list. I'll edit it and customize it for how we want to eat and we want to use it. My husband does the grocery shopping. I do the meal prep on Sunday, and then she's actually the one who cooks it up the day of. So it's perfect splitting of duties and it's stress-free for us because everything's thought out for us already. I know you've been using the paleo plan even though you aren't paleo. Why is that? 
Well, it's funny because when I first looked at prep dish, I saw that it was paleo and I was thinking, wow, we don't eat paleo. But as I looked at the menus, I realized it's really very similar to how we eat just without pasta or rice. And we just decided to try it and we love it. You know, and if we really want to eat rice or pasta, we might swap out the sweet potatoes and put pasta in there or something. So it works perfectly for us. And what's your favorite thing about prep dish? I just love the the ease of use. I love the way it's laid out. It's perfect for us because page one is the shopping list. Page two is the preparation. It steps you through how you're going to use it. I love that we don't have to think about what we're going to eat every week because that's something that was very stressful for my husband every day. He'd wonder, what am I going to make and try to put it all together. And now we get to share the responsibility of the shopping and the, and the prepping and the cooking. And I think it's, it's lightened our load and we have variety every week. So it's been great. Tell us about the new super fast plan. I hear that that is a new addition to the prep dish repertoire. Yeah, I just tried that this past week and we've been enjoying that as well. The nice thing is that it only takes an hour to prepare. All your meals for the week? Yeah. An hour? How is that possible? I feel like sign me up for that. <laughs> oh, it's great. Um, Well, you, you know, there's a little bit more prep that you're going to have to do the day of that you cook. So it kind of put a little bit more responsibility in my husband when he's doing the cooking. She just adjusted some of the ingredients on there. So th- some of the things are just purchased and then you just put together really quickly. It's nice. So for anyone that wants to give this a try, the Prep Dish founder, Allison, has a free two-week trial for Lively Show listeners so that you can give it a shot and see what this is like firsthand. To get the free two-week trial, go over to prepdish.com backslash lively free. Again, that's prepdish.com backslash lively free. Thank you, Jennifer, so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And now for a sneak peek. Next Thursday on the show, this episode was definitely, definitely a game changer for thousands of people who have listened to the show. It's been downloaded 54,000 times, and I'm pretty sure this episode has changed more lives of listeners than any other, and it most certainly has changed my life in the most visible, tangible, day-to-day ways. I cannot wait to share it with you. I'm wondering if people are guessing just from that little description, if they think they know which episode I'm talking about. I can't wait to see if you're right next week. Until then, may something wonderful happen to you today. <laughs>